me say, first of all, I'm just absolutely delighted and appreciate so much. And I mean, I suppose that's a little obligatory for the speaker to say that, but I can't tell you what a thrill it is. And I appreciate your being here. And David rather overbuilt me up the last couple of days. So. <laughs> but let me just say this. I did have knee surgery uh, a couple of weeks ago. All expressions of concern and uh, care and so on are much appreciated and so on, but I am in no pain, no discomfort, whatever. I mean, it's, the, the knee is fully repaired. I just have to keep it absolutely straight for 12 weeks. So it'll, it'll, it'll be fine, but I, I move a little clunkily. But uh, again, our focus for the next uh, several weeks, for a couple of months, is in fact the, uh, the Passion Week of Jesus. Do you know where that word passion comes from? Why, pretty much universally in the English-speaking world, do we not? We refer to that week which culminated with the death, burial, and resurrection on Sunday morning of Jesus. We refer to it as the Passion. I tell you, it comes out of the old King James. In Acts chapter 1, Dr. Luke says that Jesus showed himself... Do you remember about this? Any of you got the King James and man enough to admit it, I like to say? But uh, in the old King James, I was reared on that, but it says uh, that... Uh, Luke says in, in Acts 1 that... Jesus showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. And that, that word passion, which refers to just an outpouring of, of suffering and emotion and so on, is, is, has become sort of the, the accepted word to refer to the events surrounding the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is often referred to as the Passion Week. It is a week. It's an eight-day week, bless God. Uh, it's a week which begins when Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on uh, what we remember as Palm Sunday, and then one week and a day later on the following Sunday, the tomb in which he had been laid was found empty. And that, uh, that blessed week, that week I like to say which is at once the most blessed and the most awful week in all of human history, richly deserves our attention. Would you, would you not agree? And that's what we want to do. We want to spend the time tracing the events, and I'm going to, I've rather made a name for myself in my teaching career for making very extensive notes and then paying absolutely no attention to them. So (laughs) there's one other piece of uh, information, and I call it the uh, Harmonized Bible Reading Schedule. Look, I'm going to talk about this in just a moment, but I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that though we have these four God-breathed, spirit-drawn portraits of Jesus, his life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. We have these four portraits that we know of as the four Gospels. No one of the Gospels is or, or ever claimed to be or was intended to be an exhaustive account of Jesus' life. Is that not right? Every one of the four Gospels was written by a man whom God had raised up in his providence and whom he equipped But that man was writing to a specific audience and he was selecting and arranging and emphasizing and omitting material according to his need, all within the the scope of God's perfect providence and so on. But the fact is that we don't have this one document to which we can go that gives us a blow-by-blow account of Jesus' life or of the Passion Week. And so what do we have to do? We have to take the four that we have, and I'm going to spend some time on this in just a moment, but we have to take the four that we have and weave those four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we weave them together. Now you tell me, what do we call that when we weave those Gospels? What do we got? That's a harmony. And, and, and Christians since the second century have been engaged in the work of harmonizing the Gospels. You know what I mean by that? Just trying to put together uh, all four Gospels in such a way that you come away with this full and coherent and compelling 
narrative of the life of Jesus as is possible. So what I've done, and of course there will be no quiz, and I'm not going to give any grades, but uh, I would suggest to you, if you want to make the most of the time we have, and we're going to give, as we kind of get into that mode here in the next few weeks, what I've done is I have taken the events beginning, I believe that you can't, if you're going to understand the biblical narrative of the passion, you have to start with the raising of Lazarus, John chapter 11. So I start with John 11, and, uh, and then I trace, that's, that happens just two or three, within a couple of months of Jesus' passion. And so uh, I start with that, and what I do is I, I, I list for you the passages and, uh, that are, in other words, I've harmonized them. I've put them in, in, in sequential chronological order. Does that make sense to you? I also do this. There are a small library of harmonies that have been published. Are you familiar with this, where, where this or that New Testament scholar will take the Gospels and arrange them on the page in chronological order, and as he understands it? There are issues to be settled, by the way, uh, when you do that. There are, it's, it's, it's an interesting study. One of the most famous is A.T. Robertson's, Robertson's uh, Harmony of the Gospel. My favorite is by uh, two men named Thomas and Gundry, Bob Thomas and, uh, and Stan Gundry. They have their own, that, by the way, theirs is annotated and very helpful. But, but the point is that it might be helpful to have a, a harmony just because you won't have to skip around as much, but I, I wouldn't insist on it. I, I think you would be just as well off maybe to keep flipping back and forth in the Gospels and so on. Just read them as they're, as they're laid out there for you. But what I'm saying is this. If the Lord lays it on your heart and you have the time and the unction to do it, I think it will be a profitable and, and I would submit interesting exercise for you. Because you're going to come face to face with this issue of how to make the Gospels work together. Does that make sense? All right, so that's just for your, for your perusal. And uh, I, like I said, I'm not giving a quiz. I like to think it's going to come up at the Bema seat, but who am I to say, right? Uh, all right, well, now having said that, you know what? I'll tell you what. If God uses me to excite in you an interest in the life of Jesus, I will have counted this entire experience more than worthwhile. I can't imagine anything that is going to be more salubrious, do you like that word? More health-giving, more happy and health-giving than, than to really come to grips with the life Jesus lived. And, and it's not easy. You, I, I'm going to say again, you can't do it just by reading the Gospels. There's another step, and the next step is some work to harmonize those Gospels and to come away with a full-orbed uh, understanding of Jesus' uh, life and ministry. I believe God intends for you to do that. Look, we know, Romans 5, that God has determined that we are going to be pressed into the image of his dear son. Amen and amen? Why not get started? See what I'm saying? And uh, the best way we can do it is to learn his life. P- Peter says in, in 1 Peter 3, we used to sit under a man, uh, Dave Bergerhoff and I had both roots back Uh, Dr. Clearwaters would always say, before you can learn lessons from the life of Jesus, you must receive life from the death of Jesus. Well, amen and amen. But there are lessons to be learned from the life of Jesus. And uh, Peter says that he left us an example that we should follow his steps. And, And we are enabled to do that to the degree that we really understand the life that he lived. And I'll tell you something else. It's a cracking good drama. It's a good story in all of its parts. The life of Jesus is. Let me, first of all, I give you topic number one. It says 10 important insights basic to a proper understanding of the life of Christ. Now, I'm not going to walk you through these right now. I'm tempted almost above that which I'm able, but I'm not going to do it. Now, let me, let me tell you. 
I think there's a lot, there, there's, there's, there's a dearth of misunderstanding and ignorance about the life Jesus lived. By the way, by the way, uh, those of you for whom Colonial is your home, you have sat through, you have, you have sat happily through a series that our pastor has done that I have just reveled in because he so carefully, you are a well-taught folk, and he so carefully takes seriously the genuine humanity of Jesus. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But I was going to say that there is just an awful lot of, I think, misunderstanding and, and, and so on. And, and part of it is because, let's face it, when we encounter the person Jesus, we are encountering bottomless mystery. Are we not? There is in the person of Jesus ineffable mystery. He is the God-man. Do you realize how easy that's come, become for us? We've had 2,000 years to get used to this notion that God became man. You know, I always think it's, 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 it's helpful in this regard to, to just deliberately for a moment contemplate what it would be like to have a man standing before you claiming to be God. We, like I say, this is, we've had 2,000 years to get used to it. We believe it. I believe it. I die for it. I, my Christianity is a pile of sand without it. But just imagine what it was like to have this Nazarene stand before you and claim to be God come in the flesh. Do you understand? How that, that, there, there's mystery in that. So much of what happens in the Gospels and in the Passion Week itself can only be understood when you deliberately factor in the unspeakable difficulty of that claim. How difficult, how unspeakably difficult. It must have been for people to bow the knee. You know, I don't mean to be flip here at all, but just to make my point... What about today? What if someone were to make that claim today? You don't know me. What if I were to say, you know, I've been doing some thinking. <laughs> <You know? laughs> now, if I, I'm not kidding, and I don't mean to be flip or careless here, but if I were to say, I think I'm God coming to flesh, there are places you, would keep, you wouldn't let me play with sharp things, right? <laughs> now, you may think, well, wait a minute, Buckman, if you were to make that claim, that's silly, and I wouldn't have any reason to believe it, but when Jesus made the claim, it was easy to believe, because I've seen pictures, and he had halo, and you don't have a halo, right? No. <laughs> See, the fact of the matter is, honest to goodness, folks, and I'm drawing you up very deliberately, he didn't have a halo. He didn't glow in the dark. Jesus was every bit as much a man as any man who ever lived. As a matter of fact, he was more of a man. We, we are men who, whose lives and soul spirits are infected with sin. He was a sinless man, which is what God intended, but he was a man. And he stood before men and made the absolutely unspeakably difficult claim to be God come in the flesh. So I say, and, and by the way, I, he says getting lost in the subject here, he made it to a Jewish audience. Now, all through their history, the Jews were surrounded by pagan peoples. And those pagan peoples had a set of gods. Each one of them had its own set of, its own pantheon of gods. And they lived on a hill outside of town. And, and you know what? Those gods were nothing more than men blown big. That's all they were. They were just kind of supermen. They were just men. They warred big and they, they lusted big and they revenged big. You know what I'm saying? But all of those pagan gods were just men. And God, all throughout the Old Testament, reveals himself most dramatically as holy. And holy means set apart, not first of all from sin, but set apart from the created order. He's transcendent. God is not a man. And if there's anything that a Jew would understand, this is why I think when Jesus got, finally got the 12 disciples up to a place called Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 12 and said, whom do you say that I am? 
I think Peter, to his credit, had to fairly choke those words out of his mouth. I think he probably stood there saying, Thou art the Christ. Thou art. Who'd have thought that I, a thinking, believing, committed Jew, would ever have these words pass in my, my mouth? Thou art the Son of the living God. Uh, I don't think it was easy for him to say it. When he said it, Jesus exulted, Blessed art thou. You've got it. You've finally come to it. So I'm saying to you that we are going to be contemplating the life of this remarkable Jesus of Nazareth, and there is on the face of it a bottomless mystery attendant upon that life. And, and by the way, now I'm going to wax theological here for just a moment, seminary class. There are places in the Bible where, in theology, in the world of biblical truth, where we encounter mystery. And what I mean by that is there is something which is absolutely transcends our ability to fully comprehend, and we have to, we have to acknowledge that. But let me tell you something. Mystery is never a function of ambiguity. In other words, we don't encounter mystery because the Bible's not quite clear. But we're quite clear. We come up with all kinds of ideas and be absolutely confident of it. Mystery is always a function of absolute clarity. The Bible says without any shadow of a doubt, Jesus is God, very God. It says just as clearly, Jesus is man, very man. If there were any way we'd get out of that, we'd do it. But the Bible won't let us. And so what do you do when you encounter that sort of mystery? By the way, By the way, should we be chagrined that there is that about God which we can't fully comprehend, for heaven's sakes? I'd be bothered to have a God whom I could fully fully understand. But when God makes known the truth concerning himself, and he sends his Son, and that Son makes the absolutely unmistakable claim to be God come in the flesh, and yet man, very man, we simply bow the knee to all that the Bible says, do we not? And so I'm going way back to a thought that you thought I lost. I'm saying that there is a great deal, there's a great deal of what I think is is misunderstanding and mischaracterization with regard to the life of Jesus. Much of it is is, is born of the fact that there is mystery. We all acknowledge that. But I would submit that the answer to that is simply to bow the knee to all that the Scripture says and let the Scripture dictate our understanding and not try and fill in the blanks that we can't fully uh, uh, comprehend. But on the other hand, there's a great deal of just careless and sometimes blasphemous thought about the life of Jesus. Now, I'm going to go way back to these ten insights. That's where I started. And my point is simply this, that, and, and let me tell you something. How many of you have gotten to know my dear, dear friend and boss, uh, Larry Pettigrew? Have you gotten to know Pettigrew? Pettigrew's here as the dean of the seminary, and he's one of my dearest friends, and and uh, we were teaching back to, uh, together back in, in a college in Minnesota, Pillsbury College. And uh, God bless time. And he was the chairman of the department. He came to me one time and he said, Bookman, I was brand new. And he said, uh, I want you to teach a course in the life of Christ. I said, Larry, I never taught a course in the life of Christ. I never had a tor- course in the life of Christ. I don't have, a, don't have any idea. Well, I'm grateful for it. I wish I could find the first four or five years of classes and give them their money back. You know what I'm saying? But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would if I could. But... But my point is, uh, it, it started me on a road that I have just fallen in love with. And, and, and for what it's worth, and I don't, again, I, forgive me if I, there's hubris in this, but I just sat one time and tried to say, okay, given the way I understand the life of Jesus to be laid out in Scripture and given the elements of the drama that I think are so important and so central, you know, what are some, some factoids, some insights that I think are important? That's what, what you have here. I just tried to reduce it to ten insights that that are not necessarily intuitive, 
and sometimes they're just difficult. I think in every case they arise out of the scriptures immediately, and I would confidently affirm every one of them. Let me take you to number six. There are a couple that I want to highlight, and I'm doing this by way of, uh, you know, kind of scattershot here, so, because I'm going to come back to this later on, and, but I just want to emphasize, I say there number six, that throughout his ministry, Jesus employed a, a remarkable strategy to unmask the superficial and hypocritical nature of the public adulation paid him by the multitudes. Look, all throughout his public ministry, Jesus was the most wildly popular folk hero of the masses that Israel had ever known. How could it be otherwise? He was going from village to village, synagogue to synagogue, making remarkable claims concerning himself, healing everybody who came in on him, constantly doing miracles. Jesus never healed groups. He healed individuals. But if you got to him, he healed you. And, and, and it, can you imagine that, what the excitement that that would cause? And so on, and, and the world pretty much ground to a halt there in little uh, uh, Eretz Israel during, during those, those years of Jesus' ministry. His disciples consistently mistook the adulation of the crowds for a willingness to accept his claims. And Jesus again and again employed a strategy, and it's a strategy with which any one of you, with which any one of you might be familiar, employed a strategy to unmask the hypocritical and self-serving character of that adulation. And that is, he spoke hard words. He made it tough. He believed in lordship salvation, if you can, if you can deal in that category. But, but the fact is, uh, the rich young ruler, he, he, Jesus had a capacity to put his finger on the rawest nerve in your spiritual being and to absolutely demand acquiescence in that area. Now, very important to that strategy is the Pharisees. We're going to talk a lot more about this. But just know that the Pharisees were the almost universally adored and respected leaders of the Jewish, of the common man. And the Pharisees, by this time, we can talk more about it another time, had embraced a message which was basically works salvation, works righteousness. Jesus came to confront that. Because they were so popular, the Pharisees, and because they were so powerful, they had a punishment they could inflict upon you. Do you know what that was? They could put you out of the synagogue. Now that's a fearsome, fearsome thought. And you have it most explicitly in the Gospels in John chapter 9 where the man born blind, a man I want to meet someday, this guy, I, I admire this guy. But uh, the man born blind, you remember, because he refuses to, to tell the lie that he never was blind, uh, he was put out of the synagogue. So the Pharisees on the one hand can make, you don't want to get put out of Colonial Baptist, okay? But this is even more serious. Your, the, the synagogue was your union shop, this is where you found spouse for your children this is your whole life is wrapped up in that synagogue and to be put out of the synagogue was a horrific thing and the pharisees had the capacity to make that happen so now do you see what's at stake here jesus can simply say it's me or the pharisees and he has driven those crowds who followed him because a he was the best show in town and b he didn't charge admission and c if you had anything wrong with him you get to him he'd heal you for heaven's sakes so he never had a trouble gathering huge crowds. And it's going to be Tuesday of the Passion Week before that popularity breaks. One could almost say it's going to be Friday morning before it breaks. But just know that, that 
this relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees is hugely, hugely important. Does that make sense to you? All right, and when I say relationship, what I mean is that because they so clearly represent the false gospel which he had come to confront, and because they could make someone pay who rejected them, Jesus could simply say, you make the choice, me or the Pharisees, and it became a, a very, very telling way to put people to the test. that makes sense to you? We're going to come back to that. All right, now, number seven. I'm just picking a couple of these. Number seven, I make the point, and I'm going to say it baldly here, and I'll come back to it in a moment. Jesus never spoke of his death until the last seven months of his life. You have to understand that when we think of Jesus coming, his ministry, we think of him as coming to die. Amen and amen. Jesus understood he was going to the cross. But he never, ever talked about it until Matthew 16, verse 21. And that is about seven months before his death. And it's alone with his disciples. I won't take you there, but if you go to Matthew 16, 21, the verse says this, then, and by the way, this is in connection with that event that I mentioned before where Jesus had taken the 12 up to a place called Caesarea Philippi, a very, very remote place. He had tried for about four months to get alone with him. He had been frustrated in that attempt again and again, and finally he took him to a remarkable place well to the north, a place that is totally given over to Roman pagan gods, a place that was uh, ruled by uh, Herod Philip, and uh, he had made it into sort of a spa for, for Roman soldiers, and so all of the wickedness you might, but it was very mountainous, and so Jesus took them up to that place called Caesarea Philippi, it's called Banyas, and it's in Matthew 16, and he gives them their final exam. I think that's what's going on here. Tell me, who do men say to you? Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, you got that. Now it's time for the grad work. You know what I'm saying? We're going to work on the grad work now. Because I got something else to tell you. And in Matthew 16, verse 21, it says this, From that time forth began. Now we say that you can deduce, you can infer, I mean, it's absolutely an exegetical necessity that what that verse means is he hadn't done it before, and once he started doing it, he did it again and again, Right? From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must suffer many things of the Jews, must be taken to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the, uh, the priests and scribes, and be killed and rise again the third day. By the way, when Jesus told his disciples as explicitly and carefully as he possibly could that he was going to die, how'd they respond? Well, they were. You know, did they say, oh, of course, we got Isaiah 53. We've been waiting for you to talk about this. No, siree. <laughs> They were scandalized. The Bible says that, G that Peter took Jesus. And every translation you have will say, took him aside. And, and, and it can mean that. That's, probably, that's the primary meaning. But it can also mean it took him like this. And I think that's what he did. I think he grabbed him and he said, far be it. You're not going to die. There's no room in my theology for a dying Messiah, thank you. And uh, take your Bible just real quickly, as long as I'm on this, and go to Luke 18. Because I mentioned to you that, that according to that verse, Matthew uh, 16, 21, that it was there in Caesarea Philippi, late. Look, Jesus' ministry is going to last three and a half years. I'll talk about this in just a moment. It is almost three years into that three and a half year ministry when Matthew 16, 21 occurs. So we're within several months, maybe seven months of Jesus' death. So he has gone almost three years and has never, ever talked about dying. The verse says that once he started 
saying it, he said it again and again. From that time forth began. And one of those times is in Luke 18. This is actually on the way up to the Passover at which Jesus will die. This is within days of Jesus' death. And it says that uh, Jesus took his, his disciples aside. And in Luke 18, in verse 31, it simply says, uh, uh, He took the twelve aside and said to them, Now listen to this, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Two things real quickly. Jesus' favorite title for himself, that which almost stood in place of the first personal pronoun, was Son of Man. Eighty-one times in the Gospels he refers to himself as the Son of Man. By the way, where does that figure come from? It's one of the most important figures of the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision. He sees four kingdoms. After those four kingdoms, the Ancient of Days takes his seat. The heavenly throne room is convened. Remember this? And now the Son, one like unto a Son of Man, appears and is dispatched to establish a fifth world kingdom, the Messianic kingdom. But the fact is that that figure of the Son of Man is one of the most important and unmistakable Old Testament pictures of Messiah. Jesus uses it constantly. He's talking clearly about himself, the point is, and it's very, very common in, in Hebrew speech to use the third person with a title, even when you're t- talking to yourself. So I'm back to it. Verse 31, I, I wonder. He says to his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem. All things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. He'll be delivered to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, don't don't lose that passage. But let me just ask, are those words hard to understand? I mean, they're emotionally demanding. You know, you wouldn't want to hear them. But is there some esoteric literary formula going on there? It's almost... See spot running, you know what I'm saying? I mean, how could it be simpler? But look at verse 34. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not know the things which were spoken. Luke rather trips over himself to make the point that they didn't get it. And if you want an index of how thoroughly they didn't get it, when Jesus spoke of dying every single time in the record save one, Every time he talked about the fact that he was going to die, in the same breath, he said, on the third day I will rise again. You might think that maybe just a couple of the disciples, you know, would have thought, you know, well, let's chat. What could it hurt? We'll lose a couple hours sleep. Let's go hide behind a tree somewhere and see what happens. Not only did they not do that on that third day, but when they encountered the woman coming with the report of the empty tomb, they said, what? You're crazy. Folks, we're going to be talking about the Passion Week. I spend the time with this little note because it is so important to understand that as Jesus approached the cross and he was moving deliberately, carefully, strategically, oh, some of the, some of the ways in which he made sure this thing will happen is just staggering as we go through the text, and we will. But as he did that, his disciples were absolutely clueless. They had no thought. Matter of fact, matter of fact, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but just think, you be one of the disciples for some months. Jesus has been talking about dying. You sit around at the campfire, he's gone off to pray or to bed, and you talk, what's this talk about dying? I don't know, it's been a lot of pressure, who knows what he's thinking. But now, you decide, he, he decides you're going to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. As you enter the city, the whole city welcomes him as king. What do you think? Does this sound like dying? Then you go back to Bethany, the next morning you come back to town, Jesus cleanses the temple for a second time, then he possesses it for two days. Hold on here. 
Doesn't the Bible say that Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, will come suddenly to his temple? Doesn't Ezekiel have Messiah reigning in the temple for two days, Monday and Tuesday of the Passion Week? We'll talk about it in a couple weeks. Jesus behaves more dramatically, messianically than any other time in his life. So you're one of the apostles. What are you thinking? See what I'm saying? We are on a roll here. I don't know what all this talk about dying is all about. But, but, and, 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 and the Bible is explicit. Luke 19 tells us that as Jesus approached the city, he told him a parable about a man who went away to, his, to claim a kingdom. Remember that in Luke 19? And it says he told him that parable because they thought the kingdom was immediately to appear. They were convinced that the Messiah was about to establish. I'm convinced that as they entered the upper room for that Passover supper the night before Jesus' death, they were all convinced that he was about to hand out kingdom assignments. He had told them several weeks earlier that they were going to sit on 12 thrones over 12 tribes. You know what? Some of those tribes are bigger than others. You know what I'm saying? I think the apostles are saying, I don't want Gad or Dan, for heaven's sake. You know, I'm hoping for <laughs> Judah or Ephraim. And uh, remember, they were climbing over the other, trying to get the chief seats in the upper room. So, so I'm saying to you, and all that we talk about in this last week, and you know, here's, here's something, and I'm getting way ahead of myself and way behind at the same time. <laughs> the, fact is, the fact is that Mark 3 has this poignant, poignant note. It's, it's quiet. But when Jesus chose the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, there were hundreds of men who had, who had followed him and, and, and they were his disciples. But out of those, he chose 12 apostles. And we'll talk more about this. But the Bible is explicit there in Mark chapter 3 that one of the reasons for which he chose those 12 apostles was this, that they might be with him. And you know, Jesus craved the love and support and prayerful help of his friends and so on. He could not have been more thoroughly emotionally deserted as he, as he moved toward the cross. That's what I'm saying to you. They didn't get it. And they didn't get it until after the cross. Now, I'm not going to beat up on him. I don't know that you or I would have done much better. You know what? I think there's one person in the record who did figure it out, that he was, he was going to die. I think there's one person. By the way, Jesus' message that he was going to die was not spoken broadly. He evidently spoke, to, spoke it to his disciples, but it certainly would have gone through uh, you know, the inner circle, as it were. But uh, I think there's one person. You know who I'm talking about? It's Mary. Mary who anointed him. And, she's, and he said, you leave her alone. She's done this against the day of my burial. And I think she alone is the one who really understood that all of this, this, this excitement, all of this supposed acceptance, to you know, this, this willingness to throw their garments down and to wave the palm branches and to cry the hosannas and so on, all of it was entirely self-serving. And in fact, Jesus was going to go to the cross. So let me just leave it at that. The point to be made in there is that, is that Jesus... Oh, I was going to make one of the points. I was in the middle of it. I don't mean to be too hard on him, but it is very interesting the way Jesus responded to those two disciples, Cleopas and his friend. Remember that? In Luke 24. When, uh, and, and by the way, you want an indication of how foreign this was. It is so interesting that... You remember the story I'm talking about, Luke 24, it's the day of the resurrection, Jesus falls in, these men somehow, somehow they don't, they don't, they don't recognize him, whatever, how are you going to take that? But uh, uh, he asks them why they're so blue, and he said, yeah, are you the only man in Jerusalem who hasn't heard this man who, who, who came, went about doing good, and he's been crucified, and then those two disciples say, we thought within ourselves that this was Messiah. Past tense, we've given up hope now. He's dead, he's dead. And you remember what Jesus said? <laughs> He didn't exactly pat him on the head and say, well, it's a tough thing. 
old fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then the Bible says, and John MacArthur used to always say, man, I hope they recorded this lecture because I want to hear it someday. But beginning at Moses and going through all the prophets, Jesus unfolded to them how the Old Testament teaches the Messiah must needs die. So I, I spend way too much time. Now, let me take you to a couple of other things here, and I'm going to be quick. But I mentioned this before. I'm going to spend just a moment with it. Folks, as I said earlier, we have these four uh, Gospels, the four Gospels of the New Testament. And I want to just say a word concerning the integrity and the accuracy of these documents. I mentioned earlier that there is, um, I, I, and, and again, I, I, I'm chagrined by this, but there is an amazing lack of interest today on the part of most of the evangelical world concerning the life of Jesus. I'll tell you what, it used to be when I was in seminary, when I was a kid, that every three or four years, some New Testament scholar, somebody would come out with a new kind of major life of Jesus. I think the last one is Robert Duncan Culver in 1973. People don't study the life of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to get myself all whipped up and you're not going to care. But... (laughs) Honest to goodness, I'm convinced that the primary reason is that throughout the Bible-believing world, the evangelical world, the world of men who study the Bible and believe it to be the Word of God, there is the almost universal acceptance of an understanding of the Gospels uh, that's called redaction criticism. Now, what do you care about it? But redaction simply means it's a a high-sounding German word for editor. And it argues that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not historians as we might expect them to have been. They were not concerned about historical detail, but they were concerned about fashioning the story in a way that would really be powerful to their audience, so they took liberties. And it's mostly at the fringes. So that, I'll give you an example. There are three times in the book of Luke uh, Luke 11, uh, 22, Luke 13, 51, and, 8, and 17, 11, where in the last six months of Jesus' life, Jesus sets out for Jerusalem. Interestingly, he never gets to Jerusalem in Luke. But three times he sets out. Now, one very important New Testament scholar, and you can work me over it, I'm not going to say who, but I, I have great respect for the man, but I think he's terribly, terribly wrong here. His explanation is that Luke liked to travel. And so when he would tell a story about Jesus, he would just put it in the narrative that he was traveling. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, it's not important. That's not even important to the story. So he just, he just insinuated those things. That make sense to you? Not, not do you find that attractive and compelling. Do you understand what I'm saying? The point is, folks, now again, I'm going to get myself whipped up over this, but it's exactly at the fringes, at those details that are so important to the business of harmonizing. And if you give that away... You simply cannot, you don't have enough data to weave together a coherent life of Jesus. And that is the conclusion to which most in the evangelical world uh, have come. They are convinced that there is enough, there are enough places where the Gospels are not historically factual that it's impossible to weave together a life of Jesus. Now, they, the next breath, they will be quick to say, but the basic story is there, and we know that he did miracles, and we know that he died, and we know, so that's the story. Well, that's a whole other subject. I wouldn't mind talking about that sometime. But the fact of the matter is, I'm going to argue that the Bible is inerrant. I know this is motherhood and apple pie, but, but I believe in it, that the Bible is absolutely inerrant in all of its parts. And I believe, now, let me just go back to it. The fact is, interestingly enough, 
that those three times where Luke has Jesus setting out to Jerusalem is a section where Matthew and Mark drop out, and it's only Luke and John that are telling the story. And guess what? John has Jesus arriving in Jerusalem three times. And so if you allow me that detail, I can make perfect sense between the story of Luke and John. Does that make sense to you? But by reason of the fact, here's where I'm taking you. By reason of the fact that there are perceived difficulties, and there are no difficulties that can't be happily reconciled and harmonized, but, but so many in the evangelical world, especially the world of academia, throw up their hands and give up on it. I, I just want to say I am going to treat those records with the, the, the respect I believe God intends, and I believe they are absolutely inerrant in their original documents, and, and, and therefore the, wor- the work of harmonization, of weaving those Gospels together, is not only possible, it's noble. I think God expects us to do it, and it's the only way we can come. You know what? Let me just say this. Those are historical documents. Christianity, or let's say it this way, the religion of Scripture, Judeo-Christianity, think about this. This is, a, this is something to take home and chew on a little bit. Is unique among all the pretender religions of the world, in many ways, but at this point especially, it is absolutely grounded in history. This is huge. Most religions are a function of some man who sat in a hilltop and had grand metaphysical thought and shared them, thought, you know, and shared them with somebody and so on. God broke through into human history. Theologians have always acknowledged that revelation, God making himself known to man, has always happened in two stages, event and then word. In other words, first of all, you have event revelation. And that is God breaking through. That is the waters parting and Israel going across. That is uh, you know, hailstones falling out of the sky and, and, and killing Canaanite soldiers and the walls falling out and Jesus coming alive from a tomb. That's God perpendicularizing himself to human history. Does that make sense to you? He breaks in and it happens. Now, that's not enough. If all we had was the event, we'd get it wrong. And so God always followed up event revelation with word revelation. He would raise up, in the Old Testament we call prophets, in the New Testament we call apostles, and those prophets and apostles would do two things. Number one, they would record the events, authoritative, and number two, they would explain them to you. Now, your faith is grounded in history, and certainly the gospel is grounded in a historical reality that occurred some 2,000 years ago. It happened, a man, look, look. Your faith is grounded in history. Here's something you ought to write down. I'm teasing. But remember this about history. It's, a, it's an insight. Most of it happened a long time ago. Would you all agree with that? Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? We're living here in 2010. We are placed, you have staked the eternal destiny of your soul's spirit on the record of a historical set of events that happened a long time ago. Well, you need to know whether or not these really happened that way. Well, what reasonable canons of historicity, of historical accuracy are there? You know, just by way of illustration, I don't have time for this, but if I were to say to you, you know, I I was doing some studying and I discovered a strange thing. Abraham Lincoln didn't die by gunshot. In fact, he stumbled and fell out of the balcony at Ford's Theater and that's how he died. Now, you'd say, hold on here, Bookman. Uh, You know, there's an awful lot of... What would it take? You tell me, just take a minute. What would it take for me to convince you of that? What would I have to have? Historical records of... I heard it. Eyewitnesses. And number two, you would want more than one eyewitness. And number three, you would be advantaged if those eyewitnesses didn't have some agenda going on. Right? 
Folks, the biblical standard is, and by the way, by the way, that book is calling you to bow the knee to a set of historical realities that are a lot more strange than that Abraham Lincoln stumbled and fell and that's how he died. That that book is asking you to believe that there was a man who was crucified and three days later he came alive out of the tomb. Now, the reason that now you say, well, wait a minute, the Spirit of God has drawn Yeah, he has. It's the Spirit of God who draws you, but he uses the means of that remarkably historical book which has been proven again and again. Your faith doesn't stand upon those proofs, but you are not asked to believe a bunch of sillies. This is not the Book of Mormon. This is not some, some silly uh, that is historically vindicatable. Does that make sense to you? It's huge. Listen, the biblical standard, I believe, is, will you tell me, How is every matter to be established? In the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now watch. Matthew was an eyewitness. John was an eyewitness. Mark is writing the story of Peter, clearly. There's no doubt about it. Every every scintilla of historical evidence is that Mark wrote down Peter's gospel. You've got three eyewitnesses, Matthew, John, and Peter. Now, on top of that, Luke tells us that though he was not privy to this, to these events, he sought out eyewitnesses. I just can't overstate how important it is to understand that this is not just some sort of, of dim remembrance by people. You know, when Jesus resurrected, he was quick to go to Galilee. Why did he go to Galilee? You ever think about that? Because that's where he ministered. And most of the people who knew him and could look him square in the face and say, that's Jesus the Nazarene, lived in Galilee. It was unspeakably important that he show himself alive by many infallible proofs. that he. So I'm saying, I'm going way back to it. We have these, these gospel records. We are going to treat them as absolutely inerrant in all of their parts, as spirit-breathed and then carefully preserved for us. And by reason of that fact, we have enough detail here to weave together a very, very full account. Now let me tell you one other thing and then we're going to break. It's interesting. I mentioned before that each one of the Gospels is uh, selective. In other words, each one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, picks and chooses and emphasizes this period and doesn't speak of this period and so on. It's, it's manifest. But interestingly enough, each one of the four Gospels gives about 40% of his space to the Passion Week. In other words, even though they'll speed through this portion or speed through that part of Jesus' life, when they get to this last week, they throw on the brakes, and we have a very, very full record. You put those four together, each one given about two-fifths of their entire book to the events of these days, and we can fashion a very, very complete account. Does that make sense to you? Well, one other thing, and then we're going to break. Just give me one minute. I'm not even going to talk about it. But as I said before... You folks are so blessed, and I have just, my heart has just leapt within me again and again as Stephen has taken us through this uh, series on the boyhood of Jesus and so on, because he does, in fact, take seriously what the Bible says about the genuine humanity of Jesus. And we'll talk a lot more about that, and I got some notes about it. You may want to read it. Suffice it to say that, number one, to the degree that you read the narrative as if Jesus is pretending to be a man. It's what I call the Clark Kent approach to Jesus' life, you know. And, uh, and he was just perpetuating the illusion that he was man. And many people read it that way. You're, you're, you're not going to come to grips. And you're not, it's not going to get a hold of you like it should. Understand. Let me just leave you with this. 
Jesus, there's mystery in this, but it is absolutely what the Bible teaches. Jesus lived a life remarkably like your life. During the time of his mortality, I'm absolutely convinced, Jesus had no more spiritual resources than you have. He was absolutely... Why did he spend those hours and hours in prayer? Was that just some sort of play act? Oh, no. Jesus depended upon the Spirit. He depended upon the Father. He depended upon the Word. He was obedient to the Word. And it's only because of that, Hebrews 2, 4, and 5, that he is qualified to be your high priest. You have a high priest who can, in fact, be touched with the feeling of your infirmities, who has walked. You could live a thousand lives. You'll never know the temptation that Jesus knew. You'll never know the heartache that Jesus knew. And it was genuine. Does that make sense to you? As you read the narratives, don't read it. Read them as if Jesus was only pretending. As mysterious as it is, what the Bible teaches is that that second person of an eternal triune Godhead took upon himself genuine unfallen humanity and lived out his life under the limitations that are intrinsic to unfallen humanity. 